Well, it's great to be together again. I think we could all just kind of take a deep breath and just let it out and go, ah, this feels good, doesn't it? It's good to once again be together as the people of God and dealing with life as it comes our way. I was thinking recently of this whole reality that we are living in and the seeming fear-mongering that seems to be going on in our world when it comes to even the term COVID. And I, over the years, you know, the world has stolen terminology from the church and kind of obliterated it. They've taken Christmas and obliterated that. They've taken the cross, and even the Catholic Church has obliterated the cross and its meaning and left Jesus on the cross. They've used all kinds of things from the church and obliterated them. And I want us as a church to take back the term COVID. And instead of being fearful of the term, let's let's say the term now means Christ our victor indeed. Christ our victor indeed. Next time you hear that term in the world, say, yeah, you're right. You're right. I don't need to fear that. Christ is my victor indeed. Let's open with a word of prayer as we begin our time this morning. Father, we do thank you. Thank you that we have a victor. And all that we are tempted with here in this world is no longer something that ought to cause us difficulty and anxiety, but we have a victor indeed, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are secure there. Lord, help us to realize that, not just in words, but in living. For the gospel is to have a great effect upon us as we live. May it do that in every way. And may this morning, as we hear your word, may it encourage us in that way to live for you, for the glory of your name and for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we turn our attention this morning to the study of the Word of God, I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me and turn in them to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Initially, we were going to be in Luke this morning. However, last week, of course, you understand why we weren't together. And so I wanted to return to us to this last message I want to give out of Romans 14. Over the last several weeks that we have been together, we have been learning about proper Christian behavior. Proper Christian behavior. We have seen much recently involving behavior in a general way in our world and in our country, right? There have been lockdown patterns that have been imposed. There have been riots. There are worldly responses to crisis events and all kinds of many other things that we see being paraded before us. And as the evangelical church watches all of that, as Christianity at large, if we can even use that term sometimes anymore when it comes to evangelicalism, because many claim the term but do not really know Jesus Christ. But as the evangelical church watches all that is going on, and as Christians, we also are responding to it. What we have learned from our study thus far in Romans chapter 14 is at the very least, it reminds us of an often forgotten truth about the Christian life. That the entirety of our Christian lives, who we are as people, every aspect from what we say to what we do is a direct reflection of what we actually believe. Let me say that again. The entirety of our Christian life as it is lived out in the world before us and amongst one another is a reflection, no matter what it is we say and no matter what it is we are doing, it is a reflection of what we actually believe. 
That is to say that as Christians, we are not to be primarily concerned with morality and conduct for morality and conduct's sake. As if our behavior or as if our morality and conduct are somehow isolated actions. To think like that and to act like that is for us to be like the world around us. That's how the world thinks. That's how the world acts. It is to orient ourselves to a false religious effort of morality. By way, we define our lives by our efforts. That's what exists today. The world thinks about morality and conduct as entities that produce something in them. That it produces some kind of righteousness by which God, if they even say they believe God, will somehow accept. However, that righteousness is defined. They define it, and therefore they live according to it. But that's not for us as Christians. What we as Christians are to be primarily concerned with when it comes to our behavior is that our behavior be a reflection of correctly understood biblical truth. Correctly understood doctrine. In other words, correctly understanding just exactly who God is, the very nature and character of God, and what salvation means by way of how we live. In other words, how an outwardly moral life or an outwardly obedient life, if you have that only, if you're only outwardly moral and outwardly obedient, is that actually righteousness? I will say it's actually works righteousness and is not true Christianity. True Christianity and true Christian living is obedient living that is born out of an understanding of the gospel and its outworking in all areas of life. Not just simply an outward conformity to some kind of rule, some kind of standard. True Christian behavior shows itself, therefore, in deeds and in acts and through activities that are, yes, outward activities in that they are seen and heard by others around us, but they are those outward realities because of believing and understanding the true gospel. In other words, it is the gospel that produces those because of a righteousness rather than a righteousness that is gained because of doing certain activities. And that's what we have here in the book of Romans, really as a whole, as you look at the entire thesis by which the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Rome. First comes doctrine. Chapters 1 to 11 are all about doctrine. And then from chapter 12 to chapter 16, Paul begins to exhort every true believer about how they are to live in light of that doctrine, because of that doctrine, because uh, this is true of you, then this is therefore how you ought to be living. Therefore, without a right understanding of the truth of God, without a right understanding of the gospel, and all that that means for life and for godliness as we are Christians, without a right understanding of any of those things, we will not live as we ought to live. Even if we claim it, even if we claim to be Christian, we will not live as God declares we ought to be living as Christians, and that becomes exponentially more difficult and potentially more damaging to the church when it comes to actions that are not directly commanded by the Scriptures. That's what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. What do we do when we are carrying out life in things that are not directly commanded, are not directly prohibited by the Scriptures? 
We're referring to things of life that we might choose to participate in or choose not to participate in, depending on our own conscience in a particular area or with some activity. And so, and so it is imperative for us that we carefully think through these kinds of decisions. Why? Because of the potential for trouble caused to others in the church. Because of the potential that it can make rifts and could cause dissension within the body of Christ. And through that, the clarity of the gospel can be skewed. It can be stigmatized, if you will, like a stigmatism in the eye. There's a a fold in it, if you will. It's distorted in some kind of way because how we live can distort how people hear and see what the true gospel is. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, while all things are permissible, not all things are profitable. While all things are permissible, not all things are profitable. And what God means by those words is that while it may be part of our freedom in Christ as a Christian to participate in anything unprohibited or anything uncommanded by Scripture, it may not be profitable. It may not be wise for us to participate for a whole host of reasons. And one of the biggest is that our activity may affect the conscience and behavior of other Christians, and it may cloud the clarity of the gospel. That's the general principle that the Apostle Paul has been laying out as we've been looking at Romans chapter 14. This general principle that each Christian has a personal responsibility as a brother and sister in Christ to help protect against misleading others in reference to the gospel. Now there are a whole host of personal questions that we can ask ourselves when it comes to these kinds of decisions to discern whether we are to participate in some activity, whether it be profitable or not. And as I was thinking through this recently, I began to think about an overriding principle that we need to learn in order to ensure that we are avoiding some extreme when it comes to these kinds of decisions. And that is what we can see Paul initially exhorting us about in verses 5 through 12 of chapter 14. He states what I believe to be the two most important questions that we ought to ask ourselves when it comes to these areas and decisions by which are not prohibited or commanded in Scripture. Decisions in life that that somebody else might be making, but we are not going to make, or we make, and somebody else does not want to make. Notice what he says. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that we might be that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now Paul, I believe, as I said, states the two most important questions that we ought to be asking ourselves when it comes 
to these kinds of decisions. The first question is this, is my behavior, is my activity, is what I'm doing and choosing to do glorifying God and or glorifying of God? That's the first question. Is what I'm choosing to do or choosing not to do glorifying of God and glorifying to God? The second question is this, will this decision ensure the lordship of Christ in my life? Will this choice ensure the lordship of Christ in my life? You notice first that in verse 5, the reality of being at extremes in any kind of decision can be a troubling issue to the church. What's important to one may not be important to another. Notice verse 5, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. So Paul is honing it down to the trouble that is going on within Christendom during the time when Paul walked on the earth. This may not be the very issue that we're dealing with, but there's a whole host of issues that we deal with in Christendom today that can cause major trouble within the church, and extremes can be the problem. So one man here regards one day above another, and on the other extreme, one man regards every day the same. Now, there are some Christians who try to say, in looking at this passage, that the actual problem here is how these two people view the issue. In other words, that the problem is how they view it. In other words, because they have their own views, and their view may be right and it may be wrong, but because they have their own views, simply having a certain view is the problem. That is how some commentators and even some Christians think about this text. But is that really true? Is having a certain view the problem? I would submit to you today that having a particular view isn't the problem. Having a view is not the problem. The problem actually arises between two brothers or two sisters or a brother and sister in Christ who, while having different views, they begin to view the other Christian brother or sister through the lens that their view is the superior view. That's where the problem is. It isn't that two people have differing differing views on a certain thing by which they have made a choice. The reality is that they begin to look at the other person in light of the view that they have and now point a finger at them. In other words, when we begin to view others as spiritually less, spiritually less, if they do not view things the same way as we do, that is an extreme that is dangerous for the body of Christ. That is an extreme that if it's allowed to live in our hearts and allowed to live within the body of Christ, His church will cause severs in the church, divisions in the church. So let's not be mistaken or misunderstand as we just begin our time this morning. Having a particular view isn't the problem. We all carry differing views on various things not commanded, various things prohibited or not prohibited by scriptures. The problem we must be careful of not having is viewing others and determining their spiritual condition because of our particular view. This has raised its ugly head in our current day in the church. Notice how Paul deals with this issue. First he says, notice verse 5, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So this is an individual reality. Let every person, that's all of us individually, we cannot just stand on the sidelines and say, well, I'll just wait till it all settles out. No, each of us have to be engaged. We have to be engaged in in our own minds. 
Let each man, each person be convinced how in his own mind. What do I what, what does Paul mean by that in his own mind? Well, he means that uncommanded issues cannot be things in which we participate in in some kind of mechanical way. In some kind of way where we do it ignorantly, unknowingly, without having thoroughly thought it through. We cannot do that. We have to be convinced in our own mind. We must not choose to participate or not to participate in some issue simply because someone else participates or does not participate. We cannot do that. We cannot look out and go, okay, listen, so-and-so did this, so therefore I'm going to do that. We can't do that. That's not good enough. That's going to lead you in all kinds of directions that potentially may cause trouble. That cannot be our final authority on an issue. It may be helpful to us, but we must make the final determination on any direction for ourselves based upon the convincing of our own mind, which means we intake information. We have to evaluate our choice in light of the gospel Reflecting it before others. My life, my salvation being lived out, the gospel being lived out in my life as others see it. That is simply to say that, beloved, we have to tie our minds up in the general principles and the general precepts from Scripture about what it means to live out the truth of the gospel in every area of our life all to the glory of God and to the glory and glorifying to God. We must be fully convinced in our own minds. And we are fully convinced in our own minds as our own minds are renovated by the Word of God. That's exactly what Paul says we must do in chapter 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when your mind's renewed, you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's what's to be driving our decision-making when it comes to any issue in life where it's not commanded in Scripture. What is Paul saying? He's saying that we need to know and understand exactly why we are doing it why we are not doing it so that we can give reasons for what we're doing. So let's just take this on a very practical level. Let's just take this on a practical level. If you don't know why you are doing something or why you're not doing something, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Instead of giving reasons for what you're doing or what you're not doing, instead of giving reasons for that reasoned out because you've thought it through, instead, you know what you do? You begin to defend the activity. You begin to defend the activity itself. And when defense begins, anyone who challenges that activity, regardless of what it is, and that may mean them just bringing to you other information about the activity that you engaged yourself in. And if you haven't thoughtfully and carefully reasoned it through, then what happens is their interaction just becomes with them a venue for argument. Becomes a venue for arguing over the activity rather than a humble discussion to understand the reasons for the activity. This is what happened when it comes to the issues of today when you're talking about the taboo in the room, vaccinations. Some years ago, it was homeschool. All host of other kinds of things that have entered the church today. Most conversations are not humble discussions. They're arguments about the activity arguments about the activity rather than simply discussions to understand the reasoned response 
for or against an activity. Notice how Paul speaks of the problem in verse 5. Notice what he says. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. In the original language, that's the word krino. Krino, for those of you who don't know the Greek language, it's the usual word that's translated for judge. You might even put that there. Some of your translations may say that. One man judges one day above another. Another judges every day alike. So it's, it's the process by which a decision is made. He makes a decision, a judgment about something. Making judgments is a good thing. We make them every day. You made a thousand judgments this morning that you didn't even think about, but you were making judgments about what you were going to eat, what you were not going to eat, the time you were going to get up, when you weren't going to get up, how you were going to drive here, about the guy in front of you who was holding you off, not turning when he should have, or stopping and letting somebody out when he should have been turning and following the rules of the road. You made all kinds of judgments. You came in the doors and you judged where you were going to sit. Some of us were sitting in the same place because that's where the tractor beam draws us to the same place every week. (laughs) Right? We need to make judgments of all kinds of things not commanded or prohibited in Scripture. But what do we do with that judgment? What we do with that judgment can be troublesome if we're not careful. And so here, in Romans chapter 14, Paul says, let each person be convinced in his own mind. And that means that each must study the Scriptures. Each must be able to rightly discern, to be able to be humble as they give reasons. And each must know what that, that they can exercise and forego certain things according to their own Christian liberties. It's not about their spiritual condition. For the sake of their own and for the sake of others' consciences. It's not enough for us as Christians to just go around and say in our own mind, well, you know, so-and-so does it, or so-and-so's family lives that way. No, we have to know why. We have to be convinced in our own minds. Without violating the Scriptures, we have to be convinced. And then we're able, and then we are equipped to have a humble discussion about it with others. Some of us haven't thought through certain things, and we shouldn't have any discussion with anybody. Because it's all emotion, it's all just activity, and we just argue about the activity. And so God's Word tells us, let every person live according to his own conscience as it's informed, and as it's measured against the truth of God's Word in all things. That's what being fully convinced means. Being fully convinced. Living by an informed faith. Living by an informed belief. Notice how the Apostle Paul sums it up in verses 22 and 23. The faith which you have... Have as your own conviction before God. He's not saying that there's multiple ways to be a Christian. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Christian living. He's not talking about salvation here in the sense of this is how you get saved. No, this is how you live as a Christian. You live by faith. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. In other words, trust God in what you're doing with a clear conscience as you walk before God in the gospel of Jesus Christ as glory to God and glorifying to to who God is before others, because happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. You approve that? You say you're going to do that? That's great. Maybe I'm going to come by in my own conscience, my own understanding, say, well, you can do that, but I'm not going to do that. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That means you've made a choice based upon your understanding through a conviction in your mind, and you are saying, I'm living to the glory of God, and I'm not going to point my finger at you because you do something different than I do. We have to have an informed belief. 
the faith which you have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Notice verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned. That's not is, will be, or he might be condemned. No, he's doubting. He's not living by faith. Doubt is opposite of faith. You're doubting. You're doubting what God is doing. And so he's condemned if he eats. Why? Because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is what? Sin. Sin. So if we're carrying out an activity that is not commanded by Scripture, i.e. one man regards one day, or one man eats one thing, as we'll see in a minute, somebody else isn't doing that, if we're, if we're enticed to do that, but we don't know why, we're not convinced in our own mind, guess what? Engaging in that is actually sinful for us. Even if the activity itself isn't a sinful thing. Why? Because it's not a faith. In other words, always live according to your informed conscience. That's what Paul's saying. Always live according to your informed conscience. Don't be convinced in a wrong way. Understand what and why you are doing what you're doing. Why? Because it protects you from the extremes. It protects you from, from living out here. One man regards this day, another man, and when they get together, they just argue about the day. No, it guards you from that. Keeps you balanced. Keeps you balanced through an informed conscience. And we all understand that our conscience isn't infallible. We understand that. We know that our conscience isn't infallible. Our conscience is informed. And therefore, we must be open to teaching. We must be open to doctrine. We must be open to being instructed. We must be ready to listen at all times because our conscience can be at times misinformed. We have to be willing to examine the truth. Be willing to listen to others' reasons. To be willing to humbly think it through so that we don't bring trouble to the church. We don't distort the gospel. Paul says we should know exactly why we're behaving as we are and be able to give reasons without violating Scripture. To know what God requires, to understand what God requires, that brings glory to God. That brings glory to God. So that's the first emphasis that we hear in this text Glorify God by being biblically informed. Being biblically informed will equip us to avoid the extremes. But notice, secondly, that Paul also highlights the importance of the Lordship of Christ in all of our decisions. The Lordship of Christ in all of our decisions. In other words, is my decision going to undermine or weaken the evidenced lordship of Christ in my life? Let me say that again. Is my decision going to lessen or weak, undermine or weaken the evidenced lordship of Christ in my life? You notice I put emphasis on the word evidence. I say that because that is not just saying that Jesus, when Christ is Lord of my life, it isn't just words. It isn't just saying that Jesus is Lord of my life. Christ is Lord of my life, and it ought to be reflected in how I live. He is the Master. So that's why I say evidenced Lordship of Christ in my life. Notice what Paul says in, the, in verses 6 through 12, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die 
for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be what? Both Lord of the dead and the living. So why, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So let each one of us shall give account of himself to God. This is about lordship. The important principle that we need to grasp from those verses is this. Not only are we to be sure in our own minds about uncommanded and unprohibited activities as to why we do or why we do not do them, verse 5, but also we have to realize that there is an even higher motive. There's an even higher motive for being humble with each other in these areas. And what is that? It is that each of us as Christians are actually under the ultimate lordship of Christ. Each Christian is under personally, individually, the lordship of Christ. And therefore, the lordship of Christ ought to be reflected in our actions. This is the highest level that any argument can be raised. Paul goes right to the very top. How we understand ourselves before God as we decide one way or another on an issue is actually more important than the issue itself. That is simply to say that uncommanded decisions and unprohibited things, those decisions cannot simply be made in a vacuum. We are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. In other words, the Christian life isn't some kind of theory. It's just not words. It's not some kind of trial and error experiment. Oh, I'll try it today, and if it works, good. If I, I won't do it tomorrow. No, this is real. We are united with Christ. It's so sad to me. It's sad as a Christian, but sad as a leader in the church, that many who claim to know Christ are oftentimes only Sunday Christians. You notice that in evangelicalism? So many people, so many who claim Christ, so many who say, I believe in God, oh, Jesus is my whatever, are only Sunday Christians. In other words, the extent of their Christian lives is only reflected on Sunday when they attend some kind of gathering. The rest of the week, the other six days of the week, and multiple hours of the week, even the hours they're not at the gathering on Sunday, is lived as if they're like the world. No different than the world around them. The Bible clearly says that Christianity is not to be like that. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is Master. And therefore we are to live that reality in everything we do. He is the central hub of life. Every spoke of life that runs through our life runs through Christ. And therefore, he is to be reflected in all of it. And so when considering uncommanded decisions, we have to think them out. We must be thoughtful of whose we are. We are Christ. We are Christ. So Paul says, in effect, when it comes to making decisions about Christian liberties, things that are uncommanded in Scripture, the most important consideration to think about is the Lordship of Christ. That's the most important thing to think about. The Lordship of Christ. The desire in everything I do, regardless of the things commanded or not, in everything I do, the desire to please Him. By the way, when I was reading that, did you notice that the phrase that is repeated most often is for the Lord? For the Lord? 
Verse 6 has it three times. Verse 8 has it two times. It is implied in all of the other verses. So we've been talking about the weak in the faith and the strong in the faith because that's how Paul started, right? Now, except the one who is weak in the faith, verse 1. We talked about that a few weeks back. And so here Paul is saying, listen, both the weak in the faith and those who are strong in the faith, and we said that we all believe we're strong in the faith. If we've thought our view through, if we've thought our decision through, know that you are acting under the lordship of Christ. You are under the mastery of Christ. And therefore, when you act, your primary concern cannot be for your own particular decision. Your primary concern cannot be that your decision is the highest thing or your view is the greatest of views. No, our primary concern is that in what I'm doing, an honor to the Lord. Is an honor to the Lord. It really doesn't matter what side of the in the faith equation I may fall. It doesn't matter if I'm weak in the faith or strong in the faith. My actions still has to fall in the same place. It doesn't matter whether I choose to do something or choose not to do something that isn't commanded. The motive behind my action is to be the same. Is the Lordship of Christ evidenced in my action? Am I thankful to God with a clear, informed conscience? Notice, though, notice that both, I don't care which side it's on, have something in common. That's what Paul is stressing here. They both, regardless, one says this, another says this, they're at the extremes. And maybe, in fact, they are both truly convinced in their own minds that their decision is the one that they ought to be doing. Paul says you still have something in common, even though you seem to be opposite ends of the spectrum. There's still something in common with you. And you know what's in common with you? You both are under the lordship of Christ. You're both to be concerned with ensuring that you actually behave as a Christian should behave. No matter what end of the spectrum you may be on, you're both living out your activity to the Lord, and therefore you're both giving thanks to God through your activity. Paul said, one observes the day, and he observes it for the Lord, verse 6. He who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who does not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So what's the point Paul's trying to make? What's the point? The point is there is unity there, not separation. There's unity. The point is that there should be no place for divisions to take place amongst Christians because of uncommanded issues. Listen, vaccines shouldn't divide us. Homeschool shouldn't divide us. Essential oil shouldn't divide us. All the other nonsense that has gone out through the history of the church, none of those things should really divide us if they're uncommanded in Scripture. Nothing certainly in this current crisis in our world called a pandemic should be separating true Christians from one another. The stronger in the faith should not despise the weak. And the weak should not spiritually judge the strong. Why? Because what's most important is that each one is ensuring that they are, one, first convinced in their own conscience, and secondly, they are motivated by the Lordship of Christ as they give thanks to God. We have to ask ourselves, is my conscience at rest in this activity? Am I serving the Lord in it? That's what I have to ask myself. My conscience at rest, am I serving the Lord in it? It's true of every area of our lives. Why? Not one, verse 7, of us lives for himself. 
No one of us dies for himself. So if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This is why Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. His lordship doesn't end here in this life, continues into all eternities. The Lord of every one who's alive and everyone who's died. So then why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard somebody with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Listen, we're all going to give an answer. You say, well, I made my decision with the clearest of conscience and all. I say, great, wonderful. Give thanks to God. One day, all of us are going to give an answer. Going to stand before God in your decision. And the truth will be known. The exact truth. See, we can't think that Paul is just speaking in a general way here. He's not. He's saying that because all humanity is going to face judgment one day before God, then we all better think about how we live now. That's not what Paul's saying. That's true. There is a truth in that. I mean, if we want to just keep it general, there's certainly truth there. But remember, here in Romans, Paul is writing primarily to Christians, people who believe in Jesus Christ. Right? In light of the mercy of God, Romans 12, then this is how you live. You're to offer yourself a living sacrifice to God, which is acceptable. This is Christian words he's using here. And what he's saying is no Christian in any of our activities should serve our own ends. No matter what our activity is, it shouldn't just serve our own end. In other words, none of us should live in such a way that we are asserting our own will. Living according to our own uninformed understanding, regardless of anybody else, not thinking of anybody else. No, we Christians are always to be governed by our relationship to the Lord. No Christian is to live or die in their own pleasure and their own benefit. We don't live for ourselves. So what Paul has done is he's just brought us full circle in all of this. The trouble with us is that we often get ourselves so immersed in the minutia of life that we forget the greatest principle of all. That we are to live our lives fully to the glory of God so that He is praised. So that He is honored. So that He is pleased and not ourselves. So our living is in the Lord's hands. Our dying is in the Lord's hands. Every detail in between is in the Lord's hands. No matter the day, no matter the activity, no matter what it is, we are to be motivated by the Lordship of Christ. Christ governs it all. He controls it all. We're under Him. He is Lord. And what matters above everything else is my relationship to Him. Ensuring that that's reflected in everything that I do. Beloved, I believe if we grasp these principles, just just these two principles that Paul's talking about, it would clearly, clearly help us in our lives when we make these decisions, but also how others see the gospel that we proclaim. Because Christ will no longer simply be someone we talk about as Savior. Certainly is. He's certainly our Savior, but He's not some kind of eternal fire insurance. Not what He is. No. We understand the principles. We will see the trueness of who Christ is through how we live among each other. We'll see He's Lord. He's Master. And that's what's to motivate us and to be the motivation behind the why and the what of my decision. Because Christ is Lord of my life.
Solomon said it this way in Ecclesiastes 12. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God keep His commandments. As long as we can say with biblical understanding that we are submitting to the Lord, that we are not focusing on self as the center of our concern, then what we do with uncommanded decisions your choice. It's your choice. We are simply to be always submitted to the Lord's will and the Lord's way. What Paul's saying. One day, you're going to give account. And so Paul just sums it up this way in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another how often anymore. I'll say it in one of my favorite favorite counseling phrases. Just stop it. Right? Determine this. I'm just not going to be an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I just, I'm just going to determine that. I, don't, I just don't want to be a stumbling block in somebody's way. Well, let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, your word is so convicting. Truly, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Divides down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Lord, I pray that your word would convict us, challenge us, shape us, mold us, convince us, unify us, strengthen us, clarify through us the gospel of Jesus Christ as we live in these unsettled times. Unsettling for us, maybe. Certainly not unsettling for you. This is nothing. Nothing. We would just simply embrace what your word tells us in this process. Life, decisions, interactions with one another would be less troublesome simply because we're resting in you alone. Thank you for faith. Thank you for strengthening our faith. Thank you for the encouragement of your word. Thank you for building us up, nourishing us through our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.